following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. One of the biggest and most sometimes difficult challenges and wrestles that every person has to face throughout their life revolves around the question of identity. Who am I? What makes me me? And how do I know that that is what is true of me? This is a question that we wrestle with, regardless of our age, regardless of wherever we've come from, regardless of our background is. This question, uh, sometimes we don't ask it explicitly or clearly like that to ourselves, but we do wrestle with this. Like, what, what's making me who I am? Where, where, where's my identity coming from? Uh, this is asked today, still in contemporary culture. There's a, that movie that came out recently, Encanto, by Disney. They're always asking the question, who am I? Still going on. What am I if I'm not strong? Who am I if I'm not perfect? Who am I if I don't have it all together? Who am I if I don't have this or if I don't have that? And one of the things that I find fascinating is that this is not just a modern question because even Moses, in the very next chapter, which Shane is going to look at next week, even Moses asks the question, who am I? Now, he doesn't ask that in some kind of, uh, out of general interest. He's not sitting around pondering life to himself, thinking, oh, who actually am I? He asked that question because earlier in his life, everything that he did know about himself had been stripped away. Everything he knew about himself had been stripped away. And in Exodus 3, God commissions him for this very big, enormous task. And Moses then rightly says, well, who am I that I can actually do that? Because he's just in the, in the, previously in his life, his entire identity had been stripped back. Paul, as, as if God had been unpicking his identity. And that's really the, the outline of today's message, is that God is at work in Moses' life to unpick his identity, unpick what he was relying on. God is unpicking the things that Moses had clung to for his identity. You see, whatever the source of our identity is, that is also the source of our security. Whatever makes us who we are, that is the source of our security. That thing gives us our stability in life. Who we are is defined by what we have built our life upon. And if we have built our lives upon something that is unstable, then we ourselves will be unstable. We will despair of life. And our lives will be filled with despair. And so Exodus 2 is very much about Moses working out who he is, working out who he's not actually. And it's God unpicking the things that he's been relying on, the things that are about his identity, the things that make him who he is. God is taking them away from him and boiling him down so that he can find himself in God, so he can find his security and his identity in God. And that's the main point for today. Here it is. God loves you and he wants you to find your deepest security in him. God loves you and he wants you to find your deepest security in him. This chapter, Exodus chapter 2, is going to give us three really big reasons why we can trust God. It's going to outline for us why we can trust God. But it's also going to show God, in his kindness, slowly unpicking Moses' identity so that Moses doesn't trust in the things that he once relied on, but can now find himself in God, in this very big, incredible God. So he can come to God for his security. 
So let's get into it. This chapter is basically divided into three scenes. Um, each of these scenes is separated by 40 years. So there's Moses as a baby, and then 40 years passes, and Moses as an adult, and then 40 years passes, and Moses, uh, well, not so much Moses then, but the people of Egypt 40 years after that. And each of these scenes is going to tell us something big and incredible about God and why we can trust in God. So in the first scene, which is verses 1 to 10, it tells us that we can trust in God because God orchestrates for his glory and for our good. God orchestrates all things for his glory and for our good. This section details the incredible orchestration of a number of events that come together with precision timing in such a way that we can only deduce that it is God working all of these things according to his plan, to bring himself glory. God is working these things to bring glory to himself and also for the good of his people. Now, now previously, uh, the Pharaoh had made these really big and horrible attempts to try and stem uh, the population growth of the Israelites, to, con- to try and control the growth of the Israelites. And here in chapter 2, God is beginning his response. God is beginning to respond to, uh, to, the, uh, to what Pharaoh had done and is coming back against him. In the midst of horrific destruction of life, when Pharaoh had... Uh, had required his people, had required the Egyptians to murder the baby Hebrew boys born um, into a Hebrew families. God responds. In the midst of this horrific destruction of life, a Hebrew boy is born into a family. His parents try and keep his existence a secret, but for three, after three months they couldn't do any more. And so his mother desperately resorted to putting him in a basket and putting that basket amongst the reeds along the bank of the Nile. She was trying to hide him, and you can just imagine the difficulty of doing that, of putting your baby boy into a basket and leaving him in the water, not knowing what's going to come of him. This week our kids started school, and it was Banjo's first week of school. He's in prep, and I was a mess. (laughs) I struggled. And dropping him off at the classroom and, and seeing him go in and he just like waved me off and went in and I was like standing there and had the mask on and my uh, sunglasses on and my, uh, my sunglasses were filling with tears and mist and it was all just like way too much. Like I struggled to say goodbye to him knowing that he's going to be safe and in the classroom and he's all going to be good. I can't fathom this. I can't fathom what was going through his mother's mind how desperate she was at this point to try and save her son's life. And it's here that we start to see the incredible orchestration of God, our Father. The incredible handiwork of God who does all things for his glory and for our good. This is what Kirsty and I often refer to as the it just so happened moments. And I've shared this before because it's helpful for us to think in this way. Our lives are filled with these it just so happened moments. And if we stop and consider these moments and we consider all the times that it just so happened that things played out as they did, we'll see God's handiwork, God working for, our, for his glory and for our good. See, there was a time in our, our life a few number of years ago when we, were, we had this sense that God was calling us to plant a church. 
And it wasn't because we had these great ambitions to do it. It wasn't because we really wanted to. We just had the sense that God was, was leading us to come and do this. And so we were trying to work out, well, how is this going to happen? We were living in North Brisbane at the time, uh, going to church in, in Northlex, trying to work out, like, how do we get closer to this church? Because I was on staff there. And really, it was a sense of, we, it was a time that we refer to our no, as no man's land, this, this time that we really, like, where is God in all of this? We don't know what our future holds. And we had this idea in our mind that what we wanted to do was move closer to Northlake so we could be closer to that church. And we also needed to save money so that we could potentially come and move to the coast and plant this church. That was kind of in our hearts and minds. We, that was what we were trying to do. And it was also in our minds that what we wanted, we, wanted, we needed to rent out a low-set brick home because where we were living in Fernie Hills was on a hill and we had these small toddlers and the kids couldn't play in the backyard without falling down retaining walls and trees and it was, it was crazy. So we just wanted to rent out a small little place near North Lakes, cheaply, as much as we could, cheaply. And it just so happened that friends of ours were actually house-sitting for her parents and it was a low-set brick home. And it just so happened that it was a large home and they invited us. They said, oh, actually, this is a joke. It's like, hey, imagine if you guys came and lived with us and we house it together for a year. How crazy would that be? And I was like, ah, that's stupid. We'd never do that. And a month later, we had moved in. And it just so happened that this was just down the road from where the church was. And it just so happened that they had uh, this, this place where we were house sitting for a year. They had solar panels, so there was no electricity bills, no rent. It just so happened that they had three large water tanks, so no water bills. Just so happened that it was like on one and a half acres and it was really fun to just mow the lawns and do that. And it was just this unbelievable provision of God where these, all these little it-just-so-happened moments coming together to, to bring about His plan for His glory and for our good. Now, I say that story as if we were like walking around skipping in joy because it was really great all the time. It wasn't. It was really tough. That was, that was four years of trying to work out where God was leading us. Four years of things not really coming to, coming to eventuate as we had planned them. Four years of, of really trying to work out, God, we thought you, we were going in this direction and now it feels like we're being pulled in a completely other direction. But God was working through this time. These just, it just so happened moments where we can look back and go, all right, we can fully see the hand of God at work in our lives in that scenario. You see, it just so happened that the place where Moses' mother laid him was the exact same place where the daughter of Pharaoh was swimming, was bathing that day. Now, that wasn't intentional. There's no way his mother would have gone, I'm going to put him close to Pharaoh's daughter because Pharaoh was the source of the, the death. There was a risk there. It just so happened that this young woman, this is daughter of Pharaoh, she had been brought up in the household of Pharaoh, but it just so happened that she was nothing like her dad. Her dad, who wanted to kill baby boys, she had compassion on this child and felt sorry for him. It just so happened that Moses' sister Miriam had been watching this happen, watching this all play out from a distance and plucking up immense courage, she went and asked Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a Hebrew woman, woman who was nursing the boy, who was nursing the boy for you? And with permission from Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam went and fetched her mother. Can you see the hand of God in all of this? Like, like just hours earlier, Moses' mother would have been thinking to herself, how on earth is my son going to survive the day? Maybe the week. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And she, I can imagine that she was in disbelief putting her own son into this basket. And now, a few hours later, 
her son is not just being kept alive, but she's now getting paid. Moses' mother is now getting paid to keep Moses alive, and she's getting paid by the same household that wanted him dead. Talking to some of you over the past week, past couple of weeks, I know some of you have walked through some really difficult hours, some really difficult days and weeks. Don't lose faith. Don't lose faith. God is at work for his glory and for our good. Just consider the irony there. This Pharaoh, who wanted the Hebrew boys murdered, suddenly found that one of them was living under his roof, eating his food at his expense, being trained in the languages and the customs of Egypt under his expense and under the protection of his daughter. Isn't that just incredible? <laughs> an, inc- an incredible series of things to come together like that. And there would come a day when that same Hebrew boy would stand up to the next king of Egypt. And he would lead his people out of Egypt. And, and his people would plunder Egypt as they left. And they would cripple Egypt's economy and destroy their elite military force. That's who that baby was. That's what that baby represented. This is the sovereign, orchestrating hand of our God who works all things together for his glory and for our good. And I keep talking about God orchestrating these things together for his glory and for our good because God being glorified and our good are not mutually exclusive. Those two things go hand in hand. You can't glorify God without it being a good thing for us. And the best thing for us is to glorify God. It's to praise him and worship him. That's the best thing. The, best, the deepest joy that you and I can ever hope for is when we are worshiping and glorifying God more than anything else in life. Our hearts will never be as satisfied or as joyful than we, when we are truly glorifying and praising God. And God works these it-just-so-happened moments together for his glory and for our benefit. And the reality of our lives, whether we can recognize it or not, is that our lives are filled with it-just-so-happened moments. As a matter of application, something that you could do this afternoon, go home and think of the last three, five, ten years. And think of where you are now and how God brought you to where you are now. And you might not be right now where you want to be, but God is at work. Think of those, think of, and, and label, identify the it just so happened moments and look at your past to see how faithful God has been to you. And whether it's been great, whether it's been hard and difficult or even unresolved, whatever has transpired, God is orchestrating these things in your life for his glory and for our good. So we can trust in God because he orchestrates all things together for his glory and for our good. Point number two is that we can trust in God because God redeems according to his plan. So this next section uh, from verse 11 to 22 uh, is separated from the first by 40 years. 40 years have passed and it it tells us of Moses' uh, premature attempts to bring about redemption for God's people. Now, at this stage, Moses has actually grown up in the palace. He's become accustomed to Egyptian life, and yet he has this gnawing sense in his heart that the palace is not where he belongs, but that he belongs with his people. And he begins in his heart to, to 
leave the temple, to uh, depart from the temple and begin to identify with his people, with the Hebrews. And this is the first part of God unpicking Moses' identity and security. Because Moses had everything he could ever want in that palace. Everything that the world could offer was at his fingertips, and yet in his heart there was this deep, satisfaction, this deep dissatisfaction where things were at. There was this deep dissatisfaction. This is not where I am meant to be. I'm, I'm meant to be out there with those slaves. It was a deep dissatisfaction of where things were at. And that's often where God begins to change us, begins to mold our identity. He makes us restless with the things that we used to once enjoy. He makes us restless and unsatisfied in the things that we used to once think were good, but now we look back at them and go, oh, I'm just not sure how I feel about that anymore. And maybe there's something in your heart that God is putting on your heart to do or to work at. And it's something that you can't shake. Like this, it could be anything. I'm not sure what it is for you, but this is often how it happens, right? Like something comes into our mind and then somebody else, not knowing who we are, brings it up. And then we see it written on a sign and, and there's something on our heart that makes us go, I, I feel like God is calling me to do something over here. And that might be, be to engage in a particular ministry. It might be to go across the road and talk to a particular neighbor. It might be to get involved with some kind of uh, issue or some kind of uh, thing that's happening in our world, some kind of social issue. It might be that God's calling you to missions, maybe overseas missions, or missions here locally at home, that God is calling you to do something, and you just can't shake it. And if that's you, can I encourage you? Lean into that. Pray about that. Talk to your life group about that. Say, hey, I just feel like God's putting this on my heart. Don't know what it means. Don't know where it is, but it just keeps coming up. I feel like God might be calling me to this. Can you pray for me? See what comes of it. So, so, so something begins to grow in Moses' heart, a sense that he has a part to play in the salvation of God's people. And he goes out one day and he sees what's really going on with his, with his people. He sees the forced labor. He sees an Egyptian beating up an Israelite and he acts. He murders that Egyptian and then hides the body. Now the reality was that God was going to bring salvation to his people through his servant Moses, but not like this. And not now, not for another 40 years. Salvation from God uh, was going to come. He's going to come from God, but it was going to come in divine acts of power. But the, Moses, the way that Moses was going about it, he was acting far more like an Egyptian than a servant of God. <clears throat> and this is just a good reminder to us about this person, Moses, whom God used in incredible ways, that there is only one hero in the Bible, and that's Jesus Christ. Everybody else falls into the category, including us, everybody else falls into the category of ridiculous failures who God uses. It's amazing that God uses people like us. We are in a category of people who we just call, labeled, ridiculous failures whom God uses for his glory. It's incredible. And we don't need any more evidence than Moses who murdered an Egyptian. He's a murderer. This is the same Moses who would one day receive God's law, which says... Do not murder. God uses this guy to bring about his perfect plan. So God is at work to save his people through Moses, and yet at the same time, he's also working on Moses, breaking Moses down so that Moses can find himself in God. <clears throat> you see, Moses was born a Hebrew, but that was taken away from him shortly after. 
After a life in the palace where he had everything he, had, he needed, he began then to identify with his people and he even tried, attempted to try, to try and save them in his own way, he even tried to, to mediate for them and, and to solve some of their dramas. But they, reject, they rejected him. They said, who made you a commander and a judge over us? Are you, the guy says, are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? In other words, Moses, you're just like the Egyptians. You're not one of us. Then Pharaoh hears about the murder. And he wants to kill Moses, so that bridge is burned. So he, he grows up in the palace, he leaves the palace, goes to his people, they reject him, he can't go back to the palace, the palace has rejected him, and so he has to flee, and he finds a home amongst a group of people called the Midianites. Now the Midianites are actually descendants of Abraham, and it appears that, that his soon-to-be father-in-law, Ruel, or Jethro, it was a priest of the priest of Midian. These were God fearers. So he finds a home amongst these people. He gets married. He has a son. And he says in verse 22, he names his son Gershom and he says, I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. And the tense of that helps us understand he's not talking about his time in Midian. He's talking about his time in Egypt. Like he's looking at his, at his life in Egypt saying, that was when I was an alien in a foreign land. That was, that was not who I was. Now I am home here amongst these people. He's a shepherd. But he's not even shepherding his own flock. And actually, these shepherds were, shepherds were repulsive to the Egyptians. So there's this tension here still. He's not quite home yet. God was not yet done with Moses, and he would continue to remove the things that Moses was trusting in for his identity so that he would find his security in God. And the question we might have now is, why is it so important that I need to find my identity in God? Like, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Why is that in such a crucial thing? And the answer, like I said at the beginning, is that whatever we find our identity in, that is where our security comes from as well. Whatever is building our life, whatever our life is built upon, that is our security. See, if who you are is, is founded on, is built on having lots of money or having lots of stuff or having a certain kind of lifestyle, then you'll despair of poverty. And even though you think you have enough, all it will take is to see somebody who has got more than you or a better toy than you or some other kind of lifestyle better than you and you'll despair of life. You'll say, I'm nothing. Why does God hate me? Why does God love that person more than me? And you'll compare yourself to that person. If your life, if your identity is founded upon having the perfect body, having hard abs and a sexy body and whatever it is, then every time you see somebody who you think is better looking than you or has a better body than you, you'll despair. And we could add anything into that category whether it's life achievements or a career or getting married or having kids or whatever it is, we could have, if we put anything into that category saying, I need to have that, that is, good. That is who I am, this is, this, is where, this is where I get my identity from, then all it will take is for that thing to be threatened and we will, be, we will despair of life itself. What we're doing is we're taking a good thing that God has actually given us to enjoy and to glorify Him with and we're making it into an ultimate thing. We have to have it. And we believe that we are nothing without it. And that path always leads to despair. You'll crush people to get it. You'll be terrified of losing it. You'll become obsessive to keep it and it will never be enough and one day you will be crushed under its weight. 
And this is why God wants us to find our security in him. He wants us to know actually that there is something else that is eternally true of us. And he wants us to know what that is. He wants us to know who we are in him so that we won't be shaken by the world around us. He's our father. He doesn't want us to be shaken by the world around us. As I look at my kids and I see some of the anxieties and the things that cause them stress, that grieves me. And I look at them and go, I, I want to rescue them. I don't want them to, to live in, in, in having this kind of anxiety and stress in their life. And if, if, if me as a, a sinful man can have that kind of heart towards my children, how, much, how big is God's heart towards you and I? See, he wants us to find who we truly are in him because that there is the truest thing about us. See, if you're a Christian, then the truest thing about you is not your height, it's not your hair color, it's not your career, it's not your bank status, it's not your marital status, it's not your sexuality, it's not your career, it's not anything like that. The truest thing about you is that God loves you. That's the truest thing about you. And that can never be taken away from you. That will remain long after you die and this world passes away. And that means that our reality, who we are right now, is defined not by us, but by what Jesus Christ has done for us. It's defined by who he is. If you're a Christian, then you have been forgiven for all of your sins. Not just some of them. Not most. And not just the ones that we are aware of. We're also forgiven of the things that we aren't aware of. That means that we will never be held to account for those things. Like, never. The sinful behaviors, the sinful thought patterns, the sinful heart attitudes where we have judged others where we have looked down our nose at others, where we have considered ourselves superior to other people and have despised other people and have, and have judged other people for their external circumstances, the kind of stuff that we hope no one will ever know about us, that has been forgiven and you will never be held to account for that. That's what the cross means. We do have a sin problem and that needs to be dealt with. You need to be forgiven of your sins. And that's been dealt with at the cross. If you're a Christian, it means that you are part of the family of God. He has adopted you as his child, as his son or his daughter. And that's not because you've done something impressive. It's not because you stood out in the crowd and you thought, oh, she looks excellent. She looks like she could make a good contribution. He looks pretty impressive. It's because of his impressive love for us that you have been adopted in and made part of his family. If you're a Christian, it means that you are going to go to heaven one day. That is true. Like it's actually going to happen. And that should frame every day for the rest of our lives. God loves you. And that is the truest thing about you. Regardless of how you feel, whether or not you feel particularly lovable, whether you feel like God actually could love you or not, God loves you. And that is what is the truest thing about you. We were discussing that this week with our life group leaders. Uh, we had a meeting together. There's that old song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That there is the deep end of theology. 
we can get hooked or, or, or distracted by a bunch of other things that we think is far more important, but that there is the deep end of, that's the deepest end of theology. Jesus loves me. This I know, like, I know that. Why? Because the Bible says it. Not because I feel it. Not because I deserve it, because I don't. The Bible says so. God's word says so. He gave us his word. He loves you. And he wants that to be your security. He wants that to be the thing that gives you your stability in life. Why does he want that? Because when we find ourselves in him, that's what glorifies him. When people say, I would prefer to know what God thinks of me than what you think of me, that brings him glory. Sometimes when we think about what we've got to do is we give glory to God, what we've got to do is give him credit for everything. I like your dress, and glory be to God. Hey, thanks so much for filling out the report. You did a good job on that report. Ooh, thanks be to God. That's not giving glory to God. We give glory to God when we say what he says is true of me, that is what is true of me. And that's my reality, and that's where I'm going to live. You see, when God commissions Moses in the very next chapter, it's not because Moses is the right guy for the job. Like when you look at Moses' credentials at this point in his life, he is the right person for the job. Like he is, he is an excellent candidate for this. But God doesn't say, when, when Moses says to him, and I'm creeping into Shane's sermon next week, and I did call him this week and say, hey buddy, just letting you know, I'm going to totally creep into your sermon next week. I hope that's okay. And he said, yep, that's totally fine. He's covering chapter three and four, so he's got a lot to cover anyway. But God comes to Moses and he gives Moses this incredible commission and, and Moses says, who am I that I should go and do this? And God doesn't reply to him saying, you're Moses. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, you're the right guy for the job. He doesn't say, well, listen Moses, I really need you because you know the Egyptian language and I need someone who can speak Egyptian fluently. He doesn't say, Moses, you know how to navigate the complex uh, Egyptian political process. You know how to get past all that red tape and get straight to Pharaoh himself. He doesn't say, oh, Moses, you're a Hebrew. You're one of the survivors of that horrible thing. Like, imagine how powerful the story is going to be when one of the survivors of that horrible infanticide that happened 40 years ago, you're the, you're the right guy for this, or 80 years ago, you're the right guy for this job. He doesn't say, well, listen, you've been a shepherd for the last 40 years, and I need someone who's going to be a shepherd for the next, for someone who can be a shepherd for my people. Now, all of those things are important. All of those things were helpful. But when Moses really wants to know who he is and why God should use him in this way, God doesn't mention those things. God instead says, I will be with you. That's the truest thing about Moses. God is with him. When Moses says, who am I? God says, I'm with you. When we're, when we're asking the question, who am I? See, our culture in Western culture says look inwards. Traditional Eastern cultures generally would say look outwards to your family, the people around you. And actually increasingly our culture is now saying look at the people who, who agree with you on these things, find your identity in, in the group that you're part of. The Bible says when you want to find out who you are, look up. Look towards the God who loves you. He sent his son to die for you. 
so that you could be forgiven of your sins and made righteous. God's perfection put on you. Jesus' perfection put on you. That becomes true of you so you can have a relationship with him. See, if we're in Christ, our truest reality is not what we have done or what other people think of us or how much we have achieved. Our reality is that God sent his son to rescue us from our sins and reconcile us to himself so that we would have an eternal and growing relationship with him. If you do nothing else after today, just do this one thing. Let that be true of you. When you're worried about what other people think of you, or what you've done, or how you failed, that's not you. That's not you. What Christ has done for you, that's, that's what gives you your identity. So that's the second reason why we can trust in God. Because he redeems according to his perfect plan. Finally, we can trust God because he is compassionate to our cries. So what we read in the last few verses, verses 23 to 25. So another 40 years passes and the, begin, and the people begin to cry out to God. We're told that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the Israelites and God knew. And when it says that he remembered his covenant with Abraham, that's not to say that he forgot his covenant with Abraham. It's not like he heard the cries and went, oh, right, I was meant to do something about that. <laughs> Should have stepped in, hey. No, it actually means that this was now the time to act. When God says he remembered, it doesn't, when it says that God remembered, it doesn't forget. This was his perfect timing. God hears you, and the timing of his answers to your prayers is always, always perfect. And it's especially interesting to me that it says that God saw the Israelites and God knew. I only picked up on that last night. I was, I was kind of going over this, just polishing up a little bit. It's not that it doesn't say God looked at what the Israelites were going through. It says God saw the Israelites. He saw them. And God knew. See, some of you need to hear this. You're not just a face in a crowd. God sees you as if you were the only one in the room. Your trials and your grief is not unknown to God. God knows. Our God is not distant and far away. He is personal and close, and he is with us. What this chapter has been teaching us is that, we, is, that is that God is sovereign. He orchestrates all things. God saves. He redeems according to his perfect plan and timing. And God hears. Your trials and your plight and your fears is not unknown to God. He hears you. He sees you, and he knows. So how should we respond to him? I mean, imagine for a moment that this is true, right? Because it is. There's a God who is infinite in power, infinite in wisdom, infinite in love. He works all things together for his glory and for our good. He redeems according to his perfect plan and he hears us when we cry out to him. What should we do then? How do you respond to someone like that? We respond by crying out to him. We respond by coming to him. We, we come to him and we worship him and we bring him glory. How do we do that? By letting him determine who we are 
Letting him set the reality of our lives. Letting him give us our identity. Finding ourselves in him. Letting what he says is true of us be the truest thing about us. Not what we feel. Not where we failed. Not what someone else thinks of us. or Not what we might imagine someone else is thinking of us. But what he has said and done, which is absolutely true. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible says it. I know it because the Bible says it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature, and multiply disciples in communities that depend upon, declare, and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.